Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. We're in Genesis chapter 49 and 50. Please be turning in your Bibles there to chapter 49 and 50. Um, I've been prepping for this. Uh, all week. I've got my Bible to prep for it, but actually this time I'm, uh, my prepping has to do with throwing stuff out, okay? Chapter 49 is a standalone book unto itself. You can buy books on Genesis chapter 49, prophecies of the nation of Israel and each of the tribes and what's going to behold become of them. I'm just going to reference you maybe to say like Blue Letter Bible, the free app. We have the link on our webpage and you can go to Blue Letter Bible. You can get commentaries from people like Chuck Smith or Chuck Smithler or pick, pick your favorite. And, uh, you know, we could teach a whole semester out of this chapter alone and we don't have that much time. Okay, so I'm going to go through it kind of quick, but I just reference you, if you want to dig deeper, there's a lot that we're not going to cover, but in order to cover it, we're going to have to get going. So if you'll pray with me, bow your hearts. Father God, we ask that as we approach the last couple chapters of the book of Genesis, that you would continue that work which you began, revealing in it your truth for us, your heart for us, your plan for us, your desire for us, revealing your son, Jesus Christ, for us. Help us to see, Lord, what it is that you're saying to your church this morning in Jesus' name. Amen? Okay. Genesis 49, verse 1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Okay, you remember in just the last chapter... Uh, Jacob had asked Joseph to come and bring his two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, because he knew he was sick and he was dying. Now, it's not clear that we can make a distinct connection that this event is connected to that, but he was on his deathbed and he wanted to give a blessing to Joseph's two sons. Remember, he crossed his hands and gave the greater portion, the better blessing to the younger son, Ephraim, in that. And now he wants to bless all of his sons. And so he calls them all together. I love it the way that it talks about this. It's in the last days. And any of you that are Bible prophecy buffs, uh, you like to see what God says in advance so you can kind of get a handle on what's going on in the world today. When you hear the words last days, your ears should perk up. And for us this morning, even as the church, listening to Israel and the tribes of Israel, God has a plan for Israel. This is one of the best ways to understand the world that we live in today is through what I like to nickname Jewish goggles. Looking through the lens of Israel, it will help us understand a little bit of what's going on and understand God is not done with Israel. And so in this, while we hear prophecies that are going to we'll see fulfilled throughout the scriptures, uh, they speak even to the days that we are approaching. Um, these last days, the latter days, okay? Uh, I should also give you as a reference, if you want to do a little bit deeper digging, uh, Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 33, as he is about to die, he gives a blessing to the tribes of Israel. And so it's very interesting to correlate between these blessings and then the blessings that you receive, you hear from Moses. And also 1 Chronicles chapter 4 through chapter 8 uh, lists the genealogies of all the, uh, the children of Israel. And you can get some really good information in that as well. But I'm not going to do that this morning. We'll try to move a little bit quicker. Let's lace up our sneakers and, 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 and set a pace here, okay? So, gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. If you've been following with us, that ought to perk up something in your ear. Anytime we see Jacob, we're usually referring to that one who is the heel catcher, right? The cheat, the sneak, the scoundrel. And he's in the flesh and, and, and doing things according to his human nature. But then when we see the name Israel, the game, name that God gave him, when, gave him when he changed his name, we see him in the spirit. So he's speaking to the sons of Jacob, these are the boys in the flesh, to hear what their father Israel in the spirit 
would have to say to them. So wonderful to look at this. This is God speaking to us through the man, Jacob, through the spirit. We know that God gave Joseph or gave Jacob many dreams, right? And it's kind of what precipitated all the events that have happened in this last half of the book of Genesis with Joseph. But um, in these many, many dreams, Joseph has met God and now he's going to speak. And he talks. He goes with the firstborn of his children, Reuben. Verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellence of power. And so that's a good start. The firstborn, yeah, dad, okay, here comes my blessing. He says in verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch, okay? We read about that back in uh, 35, verse 22. But here's Reuben, unstable as water, you shall not excel. He's called the excellence and the dignity. The birthright, the double portion, should have come to him as the head of the tribes. He should have become the heir apparent, the king, the priest, the one who would oversee the nation. But this is not how it came down. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, just a reference to this, in verse 1 we see... Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to birthright. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. And so we're going to see in this all these things play out, but here Reuben fundamentally has forfeited his birthright. He's unstable as water. And it's rather interesting to note that as you go through your Bible, pay special attention to some of the descendants of some of these tribes, and you're going to find some very interesting things in the genealogy. But one thing you won't find in the genealogies of Reuben is any leaders, no kings, no judges, no prophets, no priests, no nothing. Okay? He doesn't have any noteworthy descendants. So kind of ends sad for him, but he started well, the firstborn, he didn't finish good. Moving on to verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. How often we see them together. It seems as though they were the dynamic duo. They were hard to separate and always kind of brothers in crime, you could almost say, because they got up to a lot of bad things. Simeon are brothers, instruments of cruelty, are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor, honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Maybe you've seen some movies, and Lord we pray you haven't been to one of these events in yourself or you've been to the reading of a last will and testament but often the families are gathered around and often the plot dynamics is they're all kind of expecting to see what pops is going to give them and in so many cases they don't get what they were hoping for but they often get something they did not expect and certainly this is happening to Reuben and now Simeon and Levi. Why? Because they were sons of cruelty. We remember uh, the story of of uh, Dinah, where they had gone to um, the place uh, where Shechem was, and there was this defilement, and they, they came up with this evil plot to have all the men of Shechem circumcised so that they could be like the Israelites, and then their daughter Dinah could marry the son Shechem, and everything would be happily ever after. But then when the men were really, really sore, it says Levi and Simeon went in and slew all the men and the women and the children and took all their stuff. Just, just wickedness and a, and a very sad thing in this. And in fact, it's rather interesting as we just recently looked at the reunion with Joseph and his brothers and Joseph is testing them. Remember all the tests to see if they were legitimate? In one of the tests, he said, well, I'm going to keep one of you brothers here and the rest of you go back and bring my brother Benjamin that I might see him. Do you remember which one Joseph picked to stay behind? That was Simeon. Okay, and we can't make a 
direct connection, but it's quite possible he was the ringleader of this insurrection that got Joseph put in the pit, sold to the Midianites, and come down to Egypt in the first place. And so Simeon and Levi uh, are brothers, but they're not going to end well. We see a curse fundamentally placed upon them, a cross that they're going to have to bear. Now, it is noteworthy to say that out of Levi comes the priesthood, okay? But it does say down here that I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And it's noteworthy when we get into the book of Joshua, when they conquer the promised land and allot the properties or the parcels to all of the tribes, that Judah, uh, the biggest parcel in the south, they, Simeon is scattered in little spots and specks throughout. They don't get their own chunk of land, but they're scattered. And we know that Levi, his tribes were made priests and they didn't get anything in the inheritance. Their portion was to serve the Lord and to serve at the tabernacle. So there was a number of cities of refuge and places where they could go throughout Israel. They got towns scattered throughout, but not, neither one of them actually got a portion under their own. And I often think with Levi and people ask, why is it that Levi, you know, that's the priest. Isn't that the most honored position? And I think of myself when people ask me that question and I think, no, that's the one where God says, I'm going to have to keep you on a short leash. I'm not letting you go very far. I want you in church every Sunday. I want you where I can see you. I'm going to keep tabs on you, okay? Now, you may not interpret Levi and the tribe of Levi that way, but I, as a pastor, look at that and I think that's probably what God wants out of me. And I know in my heart, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the Lord I love. Bind my heart like a fetter, right? That I don't stray. And I knew early on in my walk, I'd have to be just really close to the Lord. I was that kind of guy. And I think they might have been somewhat like that. So that's the um, blessing, if you will, that comes to Simeon and Levi. Now, Judah, okay? Remember, Judah is the fourthborn in the way that it went down back in uh, chapter, was it 29, th uh, 29 and 30, the baby wars. Do you remember that? when Jacob was having children with Leah and Rachel and their, their handmaids, Bilhah and Zilpah, and all these boys were born and they all were given names and the names were kind of like digs at one another. They were, they were it was a kind of a war that went on in that. Judah is born and I love it. Judah, if you remember, was praise. Finally, after the first three boys and Leah, the less liked wife had a boy, she named him praise. Finally, she could be happy about her circumstance. And, and so here comes Judah, the fourthborn. He says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise, right? That's kind of worked in there, a little bit of a word um, uh, smithing there. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Okay, and so this speaks of, of Judah, who we know is the um, ancestor through whom the, the genealogy, the descendants, uh, come to Jesus, Messiah, okay? He is of the tribe of Judah. In fact, we read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, when everybody's gathered around the throne in the last days, and they look upon him as the lamb who was slain, and they say, who is worthy to take the scroll? And it's Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He fulfills this prophecy. And in so many ways, we see Jesus in Genesis, we see Jesus in Judah, and we see Jesus and Joseph in all this last part of the Bible. But this is a beautiful picture of the kingship of Jesus Christ. And so it says, um, he bow down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. Nobody is going to mess with him, okay? That's, that's Jesus, right? And it says in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, this has been known from ancient days as a messianic prophecy, okay? A portion of scripture that is foretelling who the deliverer, who the savior of Israel will be. And that person is given this name, this title, Shiloh, okay? We say Shiloh in the English. Hebrew is Shiloh, okay? And Shiloh comes from a root word that kind of is built upon the idea of peace or tranquility, but literally Shiloh means to whom it belongs, 
okay, until that lawgiver to whom it belongs, and really it's that peace that comes from his rule, his authority, his leadership. And so we see in this the scepter, which is a symbol of authority. When we say the Lord's Prayer, um, not the Lord's Prayer, Psalm 23, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That's the rod, okay? That's a symbol of authority. And this is the scepter, and it's a th symbol of power that would be wielded through the tribes of Israel, through the tribe of Judah, through the Messiah. And it says that that will not part depart until Shiloh, this name. It's used, Shiloh is used eight times in the Old Testament, and fundamentally, in some places, it's a place name, but here we see it first, and it describes a person to whom it belongs. What belongs? That, that scepter, that rod, that rod of what? That rod of peace, but that rod of righteousness. This is the prince of peace, Shiloh, when he comes. Now, what's interesting, historical Historically in this, uh, Josephus writes about this, um, and also the Babylonian Talmud records that it was about the time of A.D. 7, okay, uh, after the birth of Christ in about 7 A.D., that Rome, uh, they deposed the, the priest that was there at the time, Archelaus, and they took away the power to execute capital punishment. No longer did they have the pride the right to put somebody to death as a nation, okay? And it's interesting because at that time, it's well noted in both secular and uh, Jewish writings and whatnot that the priests in the temple put on sackcloth, ashes, and they went about the town lamenting and mourning, and they would say, oi, oi, or they would say, woe unto us, for the scepter has been taken from Judah, and Shiloh has not come. Oh, woe to us. We have no authority. We have no power. and We have no Messiah. The scripture's broken. What shall we do? Interesting, about 70 AD, if you get your math and your calendar corrected, Jesus would have been about 12 years old. And he was probably in the temple as they were going about wailing. Shiloh had not come yet. He was there. They just didn't see it, okay? And so a little bit of this, who, who Shiloh is. It says, verse 11, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And just, just a little bit in that, Judah in the south is known as one of the areas with the great vineyards. And uh, they're, they're known for their, their grape production and their, their wine production as a part of that. Southern Judah in the region of Engedi, a lot of... Uh, vineyards and wineries in that area and you can read it through the the scriptures even second chronicles 6 9 talks about that okay but in this uh we see that he's described binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the joyce vine and it's interesting what, what does jesus say in john chapter 15 verse 5 i am the vine and you are the branches, right? And it's interesting, this, this imagery of the vine and the wine press and all that is coming out of that. Zechariah 9, 9 uh, prophesied, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of the donkey. So through Jacob, speaking to the children here, uh, the sons of Israel, or the Israel, the sons of Jacob, he's giving these prophecies. Watch them come together. In the last half of verse 11, it says, He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His, and it's rather interesting in that what this is all meaning. What, what, what would that be talking about with Messiah, with Jesus? A couple uh, insights into that. You can look in Isaiah 63. In verses 1 through 4, Isaiah had this to write about Messiah. He said, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in greatness of his strength? It is I who speak in righteous, mighty to save. That would be uh, Christ speaking right there. And the question, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And the answer, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. And in fact, 
it's, it's forecasting or telling ahead of time what we would read in the book of Revelation at the end of the tribulation in verse 19, uh, or in chapter 19, beginning at verse 11, the apostle Paul or John records, now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written on it that no one knew except for himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. This is a picture of Jesus Christ coming from trampling out those grapes of wrath coming from judging the world, and his robe is washed in wine, as it will, in the blood of the grapes, as it would say. Genesis 49, back again to the prophecy of Jacob, and his eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. You can find that in the Song of Psalms, one of the greatest love song ever recorded in all of human history. It's number one on God's hit list of songs. He says so himself. And in this, we see Jesus Christ described, uh, his eyes just beautiful, mesmerizing, beautiful to look into, his teeth whiter than milk. You can imagine his smile someday when we see him, right? It's just going to be beautiful. So we see Jesus then on display here in Genesis, right? Through Judah, the son who is the son of praise, the son of blessing. Moving on with the, the, the others, it says in verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea, and he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Now, interesting here, in the order we've gone one, two, three, four in their birth order, but we jump down to number 10 with Zebulun. But it's interesting to note, Zebulun was another son of Leah. So actually, he's going according to the order of the moms of these kids. And we see Zebulun, okay? And we saw that when he was named, and, and, and we see here a picture of him being a, a, a place of refuse, refuge and rest, okay? A haven for ships. Um, and in fact, Zebulun inherited the area along the coast, the north coast, Haifa, the major seaport of Israel even to this day, as this prophecy comes true, and Zebulun would have been where Nazareth was. This was the place that Jesus, after he fled to Egypt and returned, grew up as a carpenter's son. So this is the land of Je Zebulun, and uh, Zebulun here brings uh, peace and rest. And then we move to verse 14, Ishakar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that the rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. And here we see a picture again of um, Jesus as that suffering servant, that one who would bring rest to his brothers. We read in Matthew, in chapter 11, Jesus speaking in verse 28 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Ishakar, that strong donkey, a picture of a servant. Come to verse 16, Dan shall judge his people. We know that Dan means judge. That's what he was named as a little boy. You're going to be the judge. Here come the judge, right? And this is Dan, okay? As one of the tribes, you shall judge the people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way. Not a really nice thing for dad to nickname you. A serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. Uh, that's a terrible prophecy, really, about the future of Dan. And yet it's interesting in Dan, as we go through the different listings of the tribes, over 20 places in Genesis where you see the 12 tribes of Israel listed. But you remember there was two tribes that replaced Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. So you really end up with 13 tribes. But in every listing, there's only 12 listed and one is omitted. The most often omitted one is Dan, okay? This is the one who gets probably the least ink in terms of his inheritance, and it has a little bit to do with his behavior. But Dan uh, ha has all kinds of issues or problems with him. Um, it's interesting that we note that he's left out of many of the listings of the tribes, and it's even in uh, Revelation, where we see the 144,000 uh, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel 
sealed during the tribulation. They will be great evangelists and, and tell the world about Jesus Christ. Dan's not in that list, okay? Uh, down, down the way, Dan doesn't do really well. It's interesting, Jesus would say to us in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, what I'm going to say to you is speculation, but it's rather interesting to note that here we get a list from verse 16 for, through verse 21 of Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. Now, these are the four sons of the concubines, okay, Bilhah and Zilpah. But what's interesting to me is if you go back to Genesis 37-2, that's when we first meet Joseph, and Jacob gives him a robe of many colors, and he goes, go check on the boys, and it was the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah that he was supposed to check on. These four, Dan, Gad, Ashtar, and Naphtali. And if you remember, Joseph brought back a bad report. What they were doing wasn't right. Something was wrong with these boys and what they were doing. And it's very possible that Dan was just that judge, that judgmental person, that critical person, that person that kind of started this whole uh, chain of dominoes, if you will, with the brothers disregarding and despising Joseph. Again, I said that's speculative, but it's rather interesting here uh, that we see Dan, the judge of his people, and yet he's left out uh, of anything in the, the um, genealogies. Then verse 18, it's kind of a parenthetical. Jacob's going through and he's listing, okay, Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah, uh, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan. <gasps> And it's almost like he says, he has to pause for a minute, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Right? Just, just a pause in the, in the moment here. Um, and, and truly, it's just one of those moments where you have to stop in the middle of what you're doing and fix your eyes back on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Christ. And in fact, this, this sentence here, I have waited for your salvation, the name or the word salvation is the word Yeshua. Okay, that's the first time we see Yeshua mentioned in the Bible. And here Jacob, as he's going down through these sons and all of this, this mess that they have created. I have waited for you, Jesus. It's fundamentally what he says right here. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. He picks up with Gad again. Okay, and in Gad it says, A troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. And Gad in that tribe, um, he was one of the tribes with um, Manasseh um, and Ephraim that decided to stay on the backside of the Jordan River. When they came to the promised land, they said, hey, we'll just stay here on the other side. And they made a deal. Well, you guys need to come and fight with us and conquer the promised land, then you can go back over there. But one of the things that happened was because they were on the other side of the Jordan River, throughout the history of Israel, every time some invading army and marauders would come, the first person they would run over would be Gad and Manasseh, you know, and, and, and they put themselves in a bad place. But they, they do well in the end. It says, but he shall triumph at last. He will have his victory at last. Kind of a picture of the resurrection and Jesus Christ, how he was trod down. But in the end, he rose. In verse 20, bread from Asher shall be rich. He shall yield royal dainties. And Asher has always been known for its uh, bakeries and its bread. Throughout the scriptures, it often refers to the delicacies of uh, Asher. Um, and it's interesting, Anna the prophetess, and she was in the temple when Jesus was brought for the dedication, right? And she, uh, she said... Um, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for the redemption of Israel. And sent down through Asher's genealogy is this beautiful woman, Anna, who just looked for the redemption of Israel. And when she saw it, she just gave voice to the whole world that was looking for Jesus. And she got to see him. And a, a beautiful thing brought forward here. She saw the bread of life. Uh, and then we go on to uh, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Very, very simple, but nice. Nothing negative, nothing derogatory. Naphtali, another good guy. And it's nice to see these blessings coming towards him. 
Um, and Naphtali is known as one of the re people that was given uh, the region of Naphtali as their portion of the promised land. And so uh, Naphtali is in that region of uh, Galilee, and here he's speaking beautiful words. He's a prophet, uh, kind of foreshadowing the prophet from the Sea of Galilee, our own Jesus Christ, right? Beautiful there. And, and just a side note, if uh, you're looking for a good read and you're looking for something to kind of um, lift your spirits, uh, there's a wonderful book, Heinz Feet on High Places, and it deals with the journey to Christ and the, the trials we go through, but the things that he does to, to protect us and bring us home safely. And I think of that when I think of that deer let loose in the woods using beautiful words. Verse 22, and we come to Joseph. Now, Joseph has already received a blessing in that his two sons received that portion, that double portion. But now Joseph is brought up in this, speaking of what will happen in the last days. It says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. And it's, it's beautiful in that. In Psalm 1, verse uh, 3, basically, it says, The blessed is the man... Um, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and is in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. It's wonderful that uh, Jacob starts out this way talking about a, a fruitful bough, right? And he's like that man. He delights in the law of the Lord. And we see in Joseph a picture, a type of Jesus Christ. Nothing negative, nothing derogatory ever comes off his heart. He's forgiving. He's faithful. He, he knows God's call on his life. And he just walks with his eyes on the prize. And this is a picture of, of Joseph. And, and yet it says uh, his his branches shall run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in his hand, in his strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong. Again, it's a picture of Jesus Christ, right? That vine, that that, and yet the world just takes shots at him constantly, and yet his strength remains. Nothing can can take him out. You may prune him, but he just bears more and more and more fruit. Um, and then we get on down here to, but his bow remained in strength. The arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God. And here Jacob starts listing five different attributes of God as Jacob now has a personal walking, living relationship with God. And what does he call him? He calls him the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd from the stone of Israel. Two more, the chief cornerstone we read in um, uh, Psalm 118, and in John 10, we talk. He talks about himself as the chief shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and more attributes of God. By verse 25, it says, "But by the God of your father, the God of your father, Jacob's father, Isaac, Isaac's father, Abraham, the father Adam of all mankind, and and by your father, who will help you, and by the Almighty, El Shaddai." who will bless you. And then we get five blessings listed here. And that name, El Shaddai, literally means from the chest, from the breast. It's, it's actually in the, the feminine, and it's a, it's a name for a nurturer and a sustainer. He who brings all the blessings and gives you everything that you need. And look at this picture, the Almighty El Shaddai, who shall bless you with blessings from heaven above with blessing of the deep that lies beneath, blessing of the breasts and of the womb, blessing of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. And here Jacob says, I'm giving you more blessings than I've even received from my fathers because you can't out bless God. He is good. God is good all the time. Amen. Okay. And so we see all these blessings just coming upon the, the, the sons of Israel, and it says up to, uh, this, uh, this finishing out verse 26, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills from for time uh, immortal, eternity, uh, a picture of the millennial reign as he would be the suffering servant, but also the prince of Egypt. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. And uh, what a beautiful 
blessing and prophecy of Joseph into the future. And finally, verse 27, Benjamin, this is Joseph's little brother, is a ravenous wool. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide up the spoil. Doesn't sound like the best one, but he, we can see here he's a fierce warrior. He's a mighty man of God. And uh, it's interesting, some of the descendants of uh, Benjamin are King Saul, right? The first king, head and shoulders above all of Israel, good looking. King Saul started good, didn't end well. But we also know another Saul, Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, who had a meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his heart was changed. The scales fell from his eyes. He saw Jesus, and he became the great prophet, uh, the great teacher, the great apostle, Paul. Um, and so wonderful descendants down the line here. Um, but Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. And it's interesting, if you get into the book of Judges in 19 and 20, Benjamin gets into all kinds of trouble. In fact, out of Benjamin come a bunch of radical, militant homosexuals that do some of the most disgusting things in the Bible. I think those are the two most disgusting chapters in the whole Bible, save the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that you can read. And in all of that, the rest of the tribes pretty much wipe out Benjamin, exterminate them to the point that they there will be no posterity for Benjamin. And so they, they cook up a plot to get some wives and they start Benjamin up again. But he's almost extinguished um, because of his ravenous nature. Verse 28, these are the 12 tribes of Israel and this is what their father spoke to them and he blessed them and he blessed each one according to his own blessing, right? And you often look at God and you go, God, why am I getting what's going on in my life? Why, why are these things happening to me? Well, we know often they're tests. God is just trying to prove you. He's trying to purge you. He's trying to mold you and shape you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so sometimes you're going to have to just go through some of the trials of life to get that way. But there's often, and it's so interesting to me, and it happens to me all the time, that God breaks you in the place where he knows. That's where your, your, your issue is. And, and here Jacob blesses each according to his own blessing, right? We talked earlier, you can't just raise all your children the same way. Some kids need a different form of parenting than another, and you've got to be wise in doing that. And Jacob, Israel, we read right here, in the spirit, pronounce these blessings on these tribes to come, okay? Um, and I would say one last thing in this, that Revelation 19.10 we read that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Whenever a prophet is speaking forth the word of God, it will always carry with it the spirit of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, the, the purpose of bringing Jesus to the foreground. And this is what these prophecies do. In fact, it's interesting if we look at these guys, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin, and what we have seen here, we have just seen described excellence and dignity, but dignity rejected, and a curse and a cross as it came to Simeon and Levi. We see in Levi the priesthood, and we see in Judah the king. We see in Zebulun the refuge and the haven of rest. In Issachar, servanthood. In Dan, the judge. And in Gad, the resurrection. In Asher, the bread of life. In Naphtali, the prophet. In Joseph, the millennial reign. And in Benjamin, a fierce warrior. Everywhere we look, we find Jesus in Genesis, even hidden and tucked around the edges there. So verse 29, then he cha charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered of my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the, with the field of Ephron, the Hittite, as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham, Sarah, his wife, and they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. And I've got a little note here, and that is where Jacob will be buried. So we see all these patriarchs buried there in that tomb, that cave that Abraham 
purchased to bury his wife, Sarah, and then the, all the patriarchs are buried there as well. The only one left out of this group would be uh, Jacob's wife, Rachel, and you remember she died on the way back home and was buried near Bethlehem at Ephrathah. So kind of a picture there of Jacob saying, I want to go back home. I want to go to back to the place where God called me, God told me he'd give me a promised land, and that's where I want to live. I want, I want to finish out in the promised land. And in Jacob, what a story of a conniver, a heel catcher, a, a real weasel. But Jacob finished well, right? And in some regards, I'm like, oh, thank God for the Jacobs, because um, that's me, Lord. And I just want to finish well. Okay, verse 50, and we're going to try to finish this on out. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. That's the sixth time we see Joseph weeping. Real men do cry. Okay, and, uh, and Joseph commanded his servants and the physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Remember, they're in Egypt, and Egypt is known for embalming and this process that they do to try to... Um, honor the bodies. It says, verse 3, 40 days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed, and the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. Now, the only person that got mourned for or some kind of a, a dignity, honor, and respect was Pharaoh himself, was 72 days. So here, the father of Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt, his father, who even blessed Pharaoh, we saw last week, where certainly the greater blesses, the less are Jacob himself, of God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Pharaoh received his blessing, and now that he's passed, all of the nation of Egypt is mourning him right up to, but not quite to, the, the respect and honor given to Pharaoh himself. Wonderful um, tribute to Jacob. Um, verse 4, now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I have now found favor in your eyes, please speak to the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And some people would say, Well, I thought Abraham bought the cave of Machpelah, but here... Jacob says he dug it, and you have to understand the way that it works is you get the cave, but you have to carve out your own niche, and that's where Jacob had actually somewhere back in time carved out his final resting place, and that was his plan. I want to go back there. Uh, and so he goes to Pharaoh and he tells him these things. Verse 6, And Pharaoh said, Go and make, bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. And with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. This is a massive entourage of dignities from Egypt going back to the promised land for this burial. It says, verse 8, As well as the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. Clearly, they're coming back. They left the kids behind, but they're coming back. Verse 9, And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. No doubt, this would have been headlines on your ticker tape on the news at night. This massive um, memorial for Jacob with all of Egypt coming up into the promised land to have this farewell. Verse 10, And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and there they mourned with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. They've already had 70, but now they've entered into the promised land. And not that you would know this, but Atad, if you do your homework, you'll find is at the place where the children of Israel will, in 350 years, cross the Jordan River and come back into the promised land. So this is the route that the Egyptians are taking up across the Red Sea, across the desert, up the backside of the Jordan and coming in basically the same way that the children of Israel do in about 350 years. Um, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning in the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning for the of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, 
which is beyond the Jordan. Mizraim is the Hebrew word for um, Egypt. That's Mizraim. Abel means meadow. But this is a little play on words where it says Abel Mizraim or the meadow of the Egyptians where they had this wonderful uh, memorial for seven days. Abel sounds very much like Ebel. And Ebel is mourning. And so this is the place of Ebel, Egypt, even the mourning of Israel. The world empire mourned the loss of Jacob, Joseph's father. Kind of a great tribute to him. Verse 12, And his sons did for him just as he had commanded them, for his sons carried them to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. They're going to be there about another 350 years. Remember, there was a prophecy back in Genesis 15. God spoke to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to give this land to your descendants, but there's going to come a time where they're going to be slaves for about 400 years, but I will bring them back to this place. And this is part of that prophecy coming to pass they're going into Egypt now again. Verse 15, when bro Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you, you say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of your servants of God, your of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when he spoke to him. This is the seventh time Joseph wept. I made a point of that as we started looking at all the times Joseph was weeping. We know in, in, in the Hebrew language and, and words and numbers, seven is a, a picture of completion and fullness. And this is, this is a, a, a really sad picture. Here's Joseph. We've seen how many different times in the scripture a type of Jesus Christ, a picture of, of, of what Jesus would do for us. And as Joseph has forgiven his brothers and restored them and blessed them, here they are after all of this, and they're still doubting their salvation. They're still doubting their forgiveness. And it's an indictment often on you and I. Do you own it? You have been forgiven. Jesus says, it is finished. Tetelestai on the cross. He paid your sin debt. It is done. It is done 2,000 years ago. All you have to do is say, I believe and receive. Confess he's Lord. Believe in your heart. He's raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You're a born again child of God. And these guys, just as Jesus has done for us, Joseph did for them, and here they are walking along in life after everything Joseph has done. After everything Jesus has done, do we doubt our forgiveness? Do we doubt that it's paid in full? If you don't, then act like it. Stop acting like you have to earn your forgiveness, that you have to beg, that you have to plead for your life. It's already a new life. You're a new creation. You're heaven bound. You're living in eternity. And this is a beautiful answer that goes on. It gets better. Verse 18, then his brothers also went and fell down before his face and they said, behold, we are your servants. Okay, that's all good. And we should recognize when we're in the presence of, of deity. Okay. Uh, verse 20 or verse 19, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? In uh, 1 John chapter 4, we read that perfect love casts out fear. We come to God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One. And we, 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 not, we have to recognize we've got to do business with a God who's going to judge us. But you have to understand the judgment has been done. And that you are now pardoned and you are a child of God. And just like a child would go to the father, even if the father is the king, you can go into the courtroom and you can say, Abba, Daddy. And the king will stop what he's doing to talk to his kid. Because that's the relationship we have with God now. You don't have to fear. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But, oh, I love the buts of the Bible. But. God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many alive. Classic 
verse, you know, put it on a bumper sticker, get a t-shirt, tattoo it on the inside of your eyelids. What you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? Romans 8.28, we know that those of us who love God, to those of us, all things, the good things, the not so good things, the stinky things, for those who are the called, they work for good because God is a good God. This is what he's doing in our life. And it's a beautiful picture as we get to the end of Genesis and this story that we've been following now for a year as a church. Verse 21, now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them, spoke to their heart. Closing out, Joseph dwelt in Egypt and he, is, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Okay, and we, 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 we did the math on that. Not quite as long as Isaac and then not as long as Abraham. And we're starting to see the lifespans decline after they come off of the flood and they're not living like Methuselah or these other guys, 800, 900 years. But now he's only 110 years old and he goes to be with his fathers. Verse 23, Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, and the children of Makar, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. This is a beautiful picture here. And just a little tidbit I want to throw in. I probably shouldn't but for time, but if you go down through the genealogies in Numbers 26, you're going to find that one of the descendants of Manasseh is a guy named Zelophad. And Zelophad had daughters, but no sons. And when it came time to distribute the portions in the inheritance, they made a law that even Zelophad's daughters could get a portion of the inheritance. And I just love it that just tucked in through here, we've got Anna the prophetess. We've got Zelophad's daughters who are prophetesses. God has recognized male and female. He made them. In his image, he made them both with equal dignity and honor and opportunity, and it just keeps on going through the scriptures. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we can find our true dignity. But we have to walk according to his will, according to his purpose and his plan. We can't have it our way. We must walk according to Yahweh, right? His way. So Joseph said to his brothers, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land, the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. A promise, right? That it's going to take about another uh, 350 years after the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. So up in the land of Canaan, God had brought Israel and the tribes of Israel down to Egypt. And meanwhile, up in the land of Canaan, we've got the the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Termites and all these bad tribes, right? And it says until their iniquity is filled because God used Israel to judge them and completely wipe them out. And God took Israel out of that cesspool and placed them in Goshen where they lived to themselves and kept to themselves and became a mighty nation. And when the time was right, God will take this mighty nation and come back and cleanse the promised land and give it back to the people. So you can kind of see God working in the background there. Verse 25, then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. What an end. We began in the beginning, God uh, the Aleph and the Tau, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Elohim, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth. And we start following this story on through creation, Adam, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, Jacob. We get these toledots. I know I made a big deal of that, but it really helps you understand these packages, these histories, these genealogies to understand what God is doing from creation to redemption, because truly the Bible is a story of redemption. We see uh, Eden, we see the fall, we see the flood, we see the nations, we see Nimrod and Babel, we see the patriarchs, we see the promised land. God starts in the cosmos and he works into humanity and into depravity and finally into revelation, right? 
and we see the beginnings of all things. We see the promises that God made. We see the gospel in its first form in Genesis 3.15 that I will put enmity between your seed and his seed and he shall bruise your Uh, You shall bruise his head, but he shall bruise your heel. Speaking of the Messiah that's going to come and restore everything that Satan ruined. And so we see the plan of God. We see the people of God. We see the prince of God. We see Jesus in Genesis. Uh, Worship team, come on up. So here we see the beginning of God, the creation, and there's Jesus front and center. We see the reversal of of the curse in Genesis 3.15, and as Jesus would be the cure for the curse. Um, We we see the ark as a picture of Jesus Christ carrying the saints through the tribulation, through the flood, and on in through the judgment of God. We see Melchizedek, the great high priest. We we saw them back in uh, Genesis and in Hebrews chapter 5 through 8. It describes Jesus Christ is that Melchizedek, our king and our prince, our prince of peace, the king of Salem. And we see the son and the sacrifice on the altar in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham sacrifices Isaac and he says, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide himself for a sacrifice. And that is, in fact, exactly what God did in his son, Jesus Christ. We see that stairway to heaven where Jacob sees the way, the truth, and the life, and he follows him. And and God brings him home, brings him to where he started. And we see that rejected ruler in Joseph, that suffering servant who is a picture of Jesus Christ as we go on through all of these things. I'm just going to close us on out here in Luke chapter 9. Kind of an odd place to close in the book of Genesis. But it's really cool, okay? In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is with the disciples. They're up in the very northern reaches of Israel, Caesarea Philippi. He says to them, who do you say that I am? And a bunch of questions, and he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then right after that, Jesus says to them, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and raised on the third day. This is the gospel. The same gospel that we read in Genesis, Jesus gives it to them again in this one sentence. And he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, we read in verse 29, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Just bring your attention to that word, decease. They were talking about, as Peter says in 1 Peter, his departure. The Greek word, exodus. This is the plan from the beginning. And even Jesus, up on the mountain, after explaining that I am going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, and I'm coming back again. And they started talking about his exodus. Well, that's what comes next, okay? We started with creation. We saw man created, the pinnacle of God's creation. We saw the fall in the garden, and we saw God's plan of redemption through the patriarchs, through the nation of Israel, through the Messiah. Genesis ends in a coffin. 350 years later, one page in your Bible, we see the Exodus. God brings his people home. Amen? That's the story. It's a beautiful story. Um, We'll go ahead and pray and close on out. just want to let you know that um, next time we gather together, we will be in the book of Exodus. We will be in the book of Luke, okay? We will continue in the book of Exodus on Wednesday nights. So if you're enjoying the study through the Old Testament, you can come on out at Wednesday nights at 7 p.m., okay? And you you can get more of that. But it's always been our habit, our pattern here at the Springs to go through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And I always want to bring a gospel to you, especially on Sunday morning, a morning where we often have visitors and guests. And I want to make sure that we get to tell you about our Jesus, okay? And so we're going to start in the gospel of Luke 
next Sunday as we gather together. But you can continue in Exodus and see if you want to. You, you can take it the long way or you can just jump to Luke with us on Sunday and get to the finish line real quick. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for all that you have said and done and are your very real presence in our life your answer to our prayers, your hope, our peace, our comfort, our strength, our deliverer. <sighs> Father, I, I pray that as we gather in your name, as the kids are gathered down the hallway, as we fellowship afterwards, that one thing would be preeminent in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls, in our lives, that we would look unto you, the author and finisher of our faith, that we would uh, just continue in our journey knowing that this ends in glory. Give us a strength for the journey, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.